Welcome to Bible Foundations, where we go through books of the Bible, one chapter at a time. If you've been following us along, you know we're going through the book of James, and we are today starting James chapter 4. And so before we do that, one thing I like to do is pray and jump into the review of chapter 3. So pray with me as we open the Bible to James chapter 4. Father, we thank you today for your word, and I do pray that you would speak to our hearts Give us the grace to obey whatever your word says. We desire to please you. We desire to follow you. And so we thank you for your word, giving it to us so that we might know you better and be able to follow you more closely. We thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, open up your Bibles to James chapter 4. And while you're doing that, let me go ahead and remind you of what we've studied already in James chapter 3. Again, what I'm trying to do is break them up into sections And so in James 3, we had two sections, and the first one was actually all about the power of the tongue. And remember, the power of the tongue, we're talking about speech, we're talking about words, and we know that that those words come from our heart. Jesus said that, and James fortifies this very truth. He's talking about out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. And so if you want to know what's in your heart, you want to monitor your speech. If you want to change your speech, you want God to change your heart. And so James talks about... About this, he actually drills it in for those who desire to be teachers because you don't want to live a contradictory life. And so this was very important as we study James 3. The second thing that James talks about in, in chapter 3 was the fruit of godly wisdom. And so if you're going to have fruit, not only is it going to be evident in your speech and your words, but it's also going to flow throughout all the other aspects of your life. And it's quite evident. You know, he gives some discerning markers between good and evil, godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And really what the crux of all that was about was to say that we understand these things, not only based on scripture, but the nature of Jesus. And so we want to have godly fruit in our life, and he spells that out for us quite clearly. And what we want to do today is no different. We want to chop this up into a couple different sections. And so I'm going to first read James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. We'll stop, we'll talk a little bit about it, and then we'll go into the other two sections as well. So here's what the Bible says. I'm reading from the New American Standard. It says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. This section of scripture, I think, can be summarized by talking simply about drawing near to God. In verse 1 through 3, we're looking at where James is talking about the quarrels and the conflicts that the body of believers actually have in their midst 
when James is writing to them. Certainly, James has heard about these quarrels and these conflicts, and he basically straight up addresses it by first asking a bit of a contemplative rhetorical question, and that question is this, what is the source of the quarrels and the conflicts among you? Now, this is an interesting question and terminology, and he's using this term, which is often used for national wars. What is the source of quarrels or conflicts? This this Greek word was used for national wars and very real, serious conflict, but he's using it metaphorically. He's using it as they're having debates and difficulty among speech and the ways that they're treating one another. He's not talking about an actual physical war, but he is certainly talking about Uh, a very real conflict. And so this is important because church conflict happens for all of us. I'm sure we've all experienced church conflict, and James is saying that's what's going on in the midst of them, and he's asking the question, why? What is the source of the quarrels and the conflicts that you guys have going on? And then he actually addresses it. So not only does he ask the rhetorical question, but he also gives the very real answer, just like the Apostle Paul does when he writes in his 13 letters to the various churches, many of which had real conflict. But look what James says right here. He says, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? What is the source? Is not the source that part of you, that sinful part of you that wants pleasure, that wants self-satisfaction. He's saying that you desire something, and as a result of this internal sinful desire, it creates external conflict with your church family. And isn't that really true? It's extremely applicable. He goes on to give a couple examples, and one of those is lust. So he's saying the reason that you have this is you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And so you've got this thing inside of you that's sinful, that's desirous, that's envious, that's lustful. You see what other people have. You want it. You become envious of it. And instead of asking God, you actually begin to have conflict with the people in your life. So you don't like them. You judge them. You're critical of them because they have something that you want. And then he says, this is a source of your quarrels, but one of the reasons that you don't have maybe potentially what you're jealous over or you're envious of is because you do not ask for it. What a simple principle in life. If you just think about it, now I'm not saying that we're supposed to get everything that we want. I'm not saying that everything we're envious of is what we should have. What I am saying though is that in this principle, you don't have something because you don't ask for it. What if part of life is frustrating to us because we simply don't ask people for anything, not just even God. Like we want to ask God because he's our source. We want to ask God because he's our provider. But what if in life sometimes we just need to ask people? What if there's this principle that James would even share is, is that you have conflict with people because you're not asking them either. You're not talking to them about it. You're not communicating with them. And so you sort of sit in this posture of wanting, lusting, and being envious because you don't have any communication to God and to people, which causes you to be in a place of conflict. Outwardly, that ends up manifesting with the very same people that you're thinking this towards. But the source is sin. Now, sin causes us to do all kinds of things. And you know this, lie, cheat, steal. And he goes as far as even saying murder. Now, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 talks about if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. Murder. 
Now, why is it? Because what starts in seed form manifests externally even to these extreme measures. James is preaching the same thing. The half-brother, humanly speaking, of Jesus is preaching the exact same principle that Jesus himself talked about, is that if you hate someone in your heart, this is committing murder. What starts inside comes outside. You cannot stop it. That seed, that envious, jealous, uh, lustful seed actually becomes bigger and bigger and bigger unless it's dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with or it will give birth to death. Now, James in chapter 1 tells us that very thing. We studied that together where we talked about how sin, when it gives birth, it gives birth to death and starts inside of us. And so here you have them saying this, you do not have because you do not ask. And then verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So he says, first of all, you don't ask, but then when you do ask, which they probably do at times, you ask for the wrong thing for the wrong reason. So this is reflective of their relationship with God, and he's certainly correcting them, saying you have your eyes on the wrong thing, you have your heart set on the wrong thing, so that even when you do talk to your heavenly Father about the things that you desire or want or you're jealous over, you're asking with a wrong motive. You want something for yourself. It's no different than when a child asks for something that they shouldn't have. And so if we're going to ask for something that isn't good for us, our Heavenly Father's not going to give it to us. And any teaching that would differ from that is just absolutely false. Just like a good father and mother is not going to give their child things that are bad for them, God the Father is not going to give us what is bad for us, no matter how many times we ask. And so there are teachings that say, um, you have not because you ask not, but Jesus says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be opened to you. But the fact is, is the door's not gonna open if it's not supposed to. And no matter how much you seek, you're not going to find things that aren't for you. And no matter how many times you ask, you're not gonna get things that God doesn't want for your life. And so this is where James wants the people that are reading, listening to this, to evaluate their hearts, to see if what they're really after is Jesus-centered, is gospel-centered, is Bible-grounded, and is really truly what is best for them. And the answer, of course, is no, because he goes on in verse 4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So after identifying the source of the quarrels and the conflicts, he calls out his readers, get this, on spiritual unfaithfulness. And we've got to remember, to be warm and cozy with the vision and the values of the world system is to forsake our true allegiance to God. And James paints a picture where there really is no middle ground. To have friendship with the world is hostility toward God. There is no fence. You've probably heard this illustration before is that the devil owns the fence. If you sit on the fence, you're still on the devil's side. You're either on God's side or you're not. There is no middle ground. So people who are unfaithful have decided that they love themselves more than the one that they are in covenant with. And James is actually trying to be provocative. I mean, I think we've learned that about James by now, is that he has no problem pretty much hitting us right between the eyes. And in fact, we got to admit that they probably needed it. I mean, I just don't think James would say it this strongly if it wasn't necessary. 
Now, you can think about natural situations in life. If you think about a person that you know and you, that you love very much, and they're bound up and they're caught up in something that you can't just sit down and have coffee and conversation about. You need to have a full-blown intervention. We can consider some of these passages to be James' written version of an intervention. He is talking to a people that are spiritually unfaithful to God, just like a man or woman would be unfaithful to their spouse. He says, this is adultery. You adulteresses, do you not know friendship with the world is hostility toward God? How many people in your life have you called an adulteress? I mean, how many times does that come out of your mouth? James has no problem calling every person that's going to read this letter an adulteress. Wow. I mean, I I really don't know if I have a theology for that other than to say uh, pretty provocative, very serious. Verse 5, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit with which he made to dwell in us. Now, whenever you think of God as a jealous God, which actually is referenced in Exodus 20, verse 5, and Exodus 34, 14, it says that God is a jealous God. Scholars debate as to what this uh, actually means, but I think it's very simple. We, we would just say that God longs for his people to be with him and to be like him. God created us for a reason in relationship with him to be like him, to steward the earth, to flourish, to multiply, to love and to be loved. And sin has, it wreaks havoc on God's original intent and purpose for humanity. Not only do we not flourish, but actually we die. Death is just sown throughout all humanity and sin continues to perpetuate death. And we're talking about physical, eternal, and spiritual death. And so James means to say exactly these words. God is a jealous God. He longs for his people to be who he made us to be in relationship with him. We're not talking about man's jealousy. We're not talking about the way a man is jealous for his wife or the kind of jealousy that we're aware of today in the world that we live in. We're talking about a holy jealousy from a holy God, a holy, righteous, and perfect God. In verse 6, he continues, but God gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, he is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, this comes right out of Proverbs 3.34, and he's stating that God will give greater grace. And the condition for receiving this grace uh, is really the second half of the verse. And he's saying he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So when we humble ourselves, God will give us exactly what we need to live faithfully. Grace is not just covering for our sin, but it's supernatural empowerment to live the life that God has called us to live. Often when I pray for people, I will say, Lord, I pray for the grace to obey. And the reason that I say that is because grace is the empowerment of God. You cannot do what God has called you to do without the very grace of God to do it. And he always promises to give it, but he gives it to the humble. Humble people are honest and transparent. Humble people ask. Isn't that part of the theme here in this verse? If we're going to draw near to God, we've got to be people that ask for what God provides. We can't just go out and do it and assume it. He is jealous and he longs over us being who he made us to be. He wants us to be in step with him. He wants us to follow him. And this is going to require grace from him. How do you get it? You ask. You have not because you ask not. However, if you ask for grace, God gives grace generously. So we don't, in order for us to move away from unfaithful practice, it requires the grace of God and he is able and willing to give it to us if we would just 
humble ourselves. So praise be to God for that. Verse seven, he gives us some answers here. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil. He will flee from you. Verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And then the final verse, verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, I'm not sure if you've studied this chapter before, but something you find in verse seven to 10 is 10 commands for the person who has ears to hear and desires to put aside their unfaithfulness in order to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Let me go over them in bullet points. He says, submit to God. He says, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be miserable, mourn, weep, turn your mourning and your joy into gloom. And then finally, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And when you do that, God will exalt you. When you humble yourself, this is really what he's after. If you want to draw near to God, you humble yourself, you will find yourself close to Jesus. By humble yourself, I believe he means repentance, to change, to turn. And this is an Old Testament concept where it's uh, talking about, you know, in the Old Testament, they would have sackcloth and ashes. They would actually wear sackcloth and ashes to exemplify real repentance. They did something outwardly to signify what was going on inwardly. And although we're not asked to put on sackcloth like a burlap sack and shower ourselves in ashes, what we do need to know is that God wants us to be a people of repentance, not to be pious, not to loathe ourselves, but to loathe our sin and at the same time to receive his grace. See, listen, the good news comes on the heels of the bad news. The bad news is there's sin in our lives. The good news is Jesus is a savior and he not only forgives us, but he can cleanse us from unrighteousness. And this is something that we not only obtain through salvation, but it's what we also receive through relationship. If we're going to become like Jesus, then we have to receive daily grace, regular grace, and walk in that grace. And that comes through humility. So we certainly want to receive what he's saying today and walk in that grace. So help us, Lord Jesus. Amen. In verse 11, he shifts to a focus, which I'm going to say is, is warning about judging other people. So he's talking about the heart. He's talking about themselves. He's talking about a person standing before God, looking into the mirror, which is the word of God. And then he goes to saying, hey, don't judge others, right? Reflect righteously and rightly on yourself. Don't judge others. So this is what verse 11, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but you are a judge of it. Verse 12, there, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you are, but who are you to judge your neighbor? He starts by saying, do not judge one another. Now, he's not talking about slandering each other, which is clearly wrong, but he's talking, he's giving the exhortation not to criticize. The word judge here would be very similar to the word we use to criticize. And this was a practice that was already in progress, and James is aware of it. He's aware that people are consumed with criticism and not with repentance. And one of the things we know that self-righteousness produces is that we get consumed with other people's repentance or their need for repentance through criticism more than our own repentance. 
And so James is literally walking in a conundrum. He's saying, you need to repent. You need the grace from God. You need to humble yourself. And now you need to stop looking at other people to criticize them. One of the cardinal sins from the very beginning is where Adam and Eve were commanded by God not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what did they do? They were deceived by the enemy and they did that very thing. Then when God comes walking in the cool of the garden and he he says, Adam, where are you? And when he finds Adam, probably in my mind, he's hiding behind a tree as though you can play hide and seek with God. It's not a fun game to play with. God and we lose every time we play it, but somehow they encounter each other and, and, and God says to Adam, because they had covered themselves, he says, who told you that you were naked? And then he basically shifts the blame to Eve and then to the serpent and so on. So what happens is we sin, we deny and lie, we blame and cover up, or we blame and then we cover up. So we We sin, we deny lie, we blame, we shift it from us to someone else, and then we cover ourselves. That's what they did, isn't it? They covered themselves with fig leaves. And then the cycle continues until we break that cycle. We break the cycle of sin, deny lie. So you don't deny lie, you own it. And when you own it, you ask for forgiveness. And when you ask for forgiveness, not only do you not go on to the place of lie, you don't lie, therefore you don't blame and you will not cover up, and it breaks the cycle. But the cycle would be sin, deny, lie, blame, cover up. If you break that cycle by owning it, God will give great grace. But when you don't break the cycle, you move on to blame, and that's exactly what's going on here. He's saying don't judge each other, and he says the law that he's referring to is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19, 18. Jesus brings it up later in Mark chapter 12 when he's asked, what the, what the greatest of the commandments are. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. He's talking about Leviticus 19. When he, but here's the reality. When you harshly criticize others, you sit in judgment upon them and you become the lawgiver, which literally means that we're the Lord, we're the righteous ones, we're the ones that are accomplishing God's law perfectly and justly and righteously. And so we have a place of judgment. We can sit up here and that we are the judge. We render the verdict, and when we see other people, we're not taking into consideration where we are and what we're doing and what our shortcomings are and what our need for grace is. We're looking at other people because we're not owning our own sin, therefore we're blaming other people and we're covering ourselves in the process. One of the reasons why we struggle with criticism is because we're actually covering ourselves. One of the reasons why we criticize other people is because we don't look in the mirror ourselves. But friends, I'll tell you, when you're consumed with God and you're intimate with Him, which is really what James 4 is about, drawing near to God, when you're consumed, not only does the enemy not have access to you, but neither does the flesh in a consumptive way where you're harshly criticizing other people. You tend to have grace for people. You tend to have prayer for people. You tend to have love for people. Why? Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus saw us in our sinful condition And this plan between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was that the Son would come and give His life for a people that didn't deserve and couldn't earn it. This is the grace of God. And it's that same grace that sent Jesus to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, what we didn't deserve. It's that same grace that works in our hearts to see other people in their seeming 
in the, in the sinful parts of their life, and instead of harshly criticize them, it's come to their aid, help them, speak blessing to them, encourage them, bring the truth to them, pray them out of the pit, and rather than heap dirt on their heads while they're down there. And it's one thing to bring a sin to light and deal with it. It's another thing to harshly criticize other, others in a wrong way for no actual purpose. What's the purpose of criticizing other people? As a father raising four kids alongside my wife, I can tell you that one of the things that happens inevitably when you're raising kids is kids in their growing state have a tendency to make themselves feel bitter by making comments about others. And they don't even hide it. I mean, we as adults, we sophisticate it. And we say things like, well, bless your heart. And uh, you know what I mean. I don't mean to say anything bad about so-and-so, but we have a way to sort of package our criticism that doesn't seem to be as bad. And yet God is you know, the judge of that ultimately. But kids, they don't package it in such a sophisticated way. They don't put a bow on it. You know, they, they just tend to say, so-and-so just does this bad. And so When you're a family and you're raising a home, you realize often as a reflection um, what needs to be dealt with, what needs to be changed, what needs to be course corrected because it does not exemplify or exhibit the quality of grace that we too need from God. If we're receiving that from God, then we're going to give it to others. And so James simply says, do not judge or criticize harshly other people because you need grace and so do they. Verse 13, this is the third and final section. And I'm labeling this, I'm saying that the summary of this is do not boast about tomorrow. That's that's probably what he's trying to get at here. Do not boast about tomorrow. Let me read it to you. Verse 13, he says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. Do not boast about tomorrow. And verse 17 is highly misused. I bet you you've misused it before if you've been reading the word for any length of time. And I hope I can clear this up with the final minutes that I have. So verse, excuse me, verse 13, it appears that James is still dealing with a type of worldly wisdom that would characterize those who have business dealings of all kinds. Now, he's already addressed business owners and and the way that uh, people in the church are, are looking at those who have businesses, those who are who are wealthy in this life. And so now he's really talking to those uh, business owners and he's saying, you know, you have this way about you as merchants or whatever your business might be where you actually make these comments and you say, hey, we're gonna go to this city and we're gonna do this for a year. And you don't even take into consideration uh, the life that you need to live today. In other words, there are a lot of things that we push off today because we think that we have so many tomorrows. And that's really what it's about. He calls it arrogance. He's saying the more that you plan out your life and consume yourself with tomorrow, the less you're focusing on what you have to do today. And it it doesn't mean that scheduling and planning and expecting is wrong. He's not trying to be fully extreme here, but he does mean to say that if all of this is consuming you to the point where you're overlooking what you must do today, then you're actually doing the wrong thing. And he gives some words. He's saying, 
Don't say you're going to do that. Say this. You should say, if the Lord wills it, then I will go to such and such a place because your words are an overflow of your heart. And this is just an example of James regarding the situation that he's dealing with concerning people that have businesses. In other words, here's how I want you to conduct your business. I want you to do it in the context of your spiritual life. I want you to conduct your way of life in the context of your spiritual life. And we know this is an address to wealthy business people and landowners because in chapter five, we're actually gonna literally watch how he talks about the misuse of riches. So he's still going to go right into this in the next chapter. And, and so to be continued. But let me, let me close by reminding you of this verse. Verse 17, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. Do not misuse that verse. Know what he means. He means that there are people that are so consumed with their business, they're so consumed with their schedule, that they're missing what they need to do today. And so they're pushing off the things that are most important. They're pushing pushing off the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They're pushing off the things that Jesus would prioritize. They know to do this today, and they have a conviction of it, and they don't do it. And James is saying that's sin. When you have a very real awareness of what you're supposed to be about, what you're supposed to be doing right now, and you push that off because you're so consumed with worldly things like your business, even those things that cause you to have income, he's saying to that person, that activity is sin. That's what it means. It's not sort of just general principle that applies to everything. He's specifically talking about uh, work. He's talking about businesses, and he's saying do not allow yourself to be consumed. What are the cardinal sins of our culture? Hurry, worry, and busy. It is those three things that hit all of us, hurt all of us, hinder all of us. We wanna make sure we're aware of those things consuming our life so that we make right choices and prioritize Jesus before anything else. And that's really the point of what this is about. So as we summarize James chapter four, let's remember, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let's be a people that are repentant, a people that are humble. We're not judging other people. We're actually letting the mirror of God's word reflect on our hearts and we're giving ourselves wholly and completely to him. We're not allowing our businesses, our work, our future, our retirement, or whatever it is, consume us. Our spiritual life is first. We seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and God will take care of everything else. And that's to me what James chapter four is all about. So thank you for tuning in to Bible Foundations today in James chapter four. Guess what? Next time we're coming back in James chapter five, but let's just pray that God would give us the grace to draw near to him in this season, amen? So pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. We love you and we're grateful that you speak clearly, that these principles are true. And more than anything else, we now pray for the grace to live it out. Give us the grace to obey. And I ask you, Lord, that you'd help us to draw near to you today like never before. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. Hey, God bless you. I'll see you next time on Bible Foundations. Bible Foundations.